hard to believe the drama is over. Tragedy struck downtown this morning. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome back, everyone, to the Je Nicole pod series. I'm your host, Lucy, and in this latest episode, we'll be discussing great power competition and irregular naval warfare. Today, I'm joined by Commander B.J. Armstrong, United States Navy, who is an ex-search and rescue pilot and current history professor at the United States Naval Academy. Commander Armstrong has recently published a book, Small Boats and Daring Men, Maritime Raiding, Irregular Warfare and the Early American Navy, and also has an extensive list of other publications under his belt. It's great to have you on, Je Nicole, Commander Armstrong. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me aboard, Lucy. I really appreciate it. And just at the start here, I want to point out that I, uh, I am here in my personal and academic capacity, and anything I say does not reflect the policies, opinions, or positions of the U.S. Naval Academy, United States Navy, or any government agency. Yes, and we'll definitely put that in our post as well. We'll put that in all of our posts. This is uh, Thinkers Thinking and Talkers Talking on their personal opinions and experiences. So I just want to start off, Commander Armstrong, your book, Small Boats and Daring Men, discusses the lesser known early history of the US Navy, which routinely included irregular naval warfare. And so I guess for those who haven't read your book or aren't as familiar with these concepts, would you be able to give us just a broad overview of this type of warfare that you describe in your book? Yeah, the the book is focused on, on two things that I kind of label irregular warfare and maritime raiding. The problem, I think, for many of us who are contemporary serving officers or involved in uh, national security or military affairs today is that we, we tend to get really wrapped up in labels. We get really wrapped up in uh, jargon. And so there's a danger here, uh, especially for us historians, of being anachronistic, of applying ideas of the present to the past where where those actors in the past did not think in the same ways we did, did not have the same definitions as we did. And so I just want to point out at the very beginning that I, I acknowledge that there's this complication. So these are the labels that I use. They, they come a little bit from our contemporary world, but I think if explained to a U.S. naval officer of the early 19th century, once explained, they would understand what we're talking about. When I say maritime raiding, I mean small craft raids, small amphibious operations, not, not amphibious operations to take or hold territory, but to have a, a temporary strategic effect. Right? So in, in our modern context, we think special operations uh, much of the time. Uh, in an American context, we sometimes think raids of the U.S. Marine Corps. You know, we think make an island during World War II, for example. But in the age of sail, these kinds of operations happened regularly. The other category that I have is, is irregular warfare. And I use this as an overarching description of any kind of operation that doesn't fit our traditional naval mindset, our traditional naval narrative of ships fighting ships. If, if I hold that up as our kind of conventional, traditional view of things, that navies are ships fighting ships... My aim in the book was to examine the types of operations the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps conducted in the, in the Age of Sail era that didn't fit within those bounds. Now, I say ships fighting ships. I mean both in symmetrical and asymmetrical ways. Right? So uh, I'm sometimes asked uh, from Americanists, you know, how come you don't talk about the gunboat operations of the War of 1812, where the United States fights Great Britain uh, towards the end of the Napoleonic Wars? We have our own war with Great Britain. And the reason I don't talk about those gunboat operations is because really, while they are asymmetric, kind of groups of small gunboats fighting larger British conventional warships, they're still ships fighting ships. Yeah, it's, it's still the same kind of operation, even if it's being done in an asymmetric way, the goals are still the same. And so that's why I don't include those types of gunboat operations in, in the book. I'm really looking at 
what in the age of sail were called cutting out expeditions. So that would be a, a, a group of raiders who would attack an enemy warship, you know, in the dark of night, perhaps, and scale the sides and try and take it over and capture it. I look at, like I was saying before, maritime raids, attacks by small groups on shore infrastructure or on bases or on units that are ashore. Some of this gets wrapped up in other types of operations, like counter piracy operations, uh, because about half of the book is things that happen in wartime. And about half of the book are naval combat operations that happen ostensibly in quote unquote peacetime. Um, so counter piracy kind of falls within that, that category as well. You know, I don't talk about privateering, which was a very common part of the American uh, naval toolkit in the age of sail. I don't talk about privateering because, again, I kind of see that as a ship against a ship. It's for different purposes, but but it's it's still within that kind of traditional mindset of the the attack and capture or destruction of enemy shipping. I like how you don't solely base your definition on the type of ship, but also on the type of operation. If it's a ship-on-ship -ship action, whether a capital ship or otherwise, that's still somewhat a traditional method of naval warfare. And I can see how those who haven't studied this in great detail, could easily get confused with definitions when you look at the various types of vessels as well as the various types of operations used in this era, which you highlight. I really like your nuanced definition of that. Why do you think fleet-on-fleet -fleet or squadron-on-squadron -squadron battles are more popular, particularly amongst navalists, and why it's the more glossy or sexy part of US naval history? It is It is kind of, right? The the focus of much of the naval history that we write and that we read is focused on these big battles, right? You know, my, my shelves here in my office are, are filled with books about battles. You know, in an American context, we have the Battle of Midway, which is kind of our, our, our quintessential example of the great American naval battle um, from a, an American naval officer's perspective. The British, of course, have Trafalgar. In a sense, all of us who come out of the Anglo tradition have Trafalgar in a way. The, the Chinese have very famous naval battles as well, the Battle of Lake Poyang and during the rise of the Ming Empire. And so, you know, these battles kind of tend to dominate the way we think about our, our naval history. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. I think, I think first and foremost, they're really important. Big battles, especially fleet engagements that, that may have a decisive uh, strategic impact on a conflict, something like a Trafalgar. Um, something like a, a Manila Bay or uh, Santiago Bay for the Americans in the War of 1898 against Spain. Th these decisive battles have huge impact. And, and so the battles are important. How you fight them, why you fight them, where you fight them, um, how you prepare for them, all really important parts of naval history, but also of how navies think about themselves. So that's the second thing. So the first reason that I think we see so much of them is they are genuinely important. I think the second reason that we see so much of them is that we as naval professionals, and, and I say we in, in the kind of the broadest stereotypical sense, we think they're important. They are, they are self-defining for us. We see them as the greatest challenge, the most important thing that we do, and therefore we are super interested in them. And if I'm a historian and I want to be read, what do I study? Well, I study this something that people want to read about. I'm not saying that all historians do that, but I, I admit to myself that I would like to be read as a historian. So don't I, don't I look for topics that are of not only of interest and importance, but that other people might be interested in as well. And I think that we as naval professionals, in a, in a roundabout way, influence what historians study. We want to learn about Jutland. We want to learn about, therefore, we want to learn about dreadnoughts. And so historians will come and write about those things. There's also kind of a structural element, right, with the funding of research and, and official history organizations that most navies have that influence the study of the field. But I think it's it's more of a, a nuanced and subtle thing. And simply, we, we as historians want to be read. So we write about the things that naval officers care about. And, and we naval officers see big battles as, as part of our identity. Mm. We don't see little things. We don't see counter piracy. We don't see little raids. We don't see maritime security operations as a part of our identity as naval officers. In quite the same way, we see fighting and winning the big battle. 
So I think these things, these things all come together to influence what gets studied and therefore what gets written about. For me, really, the reason when I when I look back on it and try and think really reflectively about the reason that I wrote this book, Small Boats and Daring Men, it's because as a, as someone who flew, you know, special warfare and search and rescue missions with Marine amphibious uh, or with amphibious ready groups and Marine expeditionary units for pretty much my whole career, most of my service was in irregular operations. I did counter piracy. I did counter smuggling and narcotics operations in the Caribbean. Uh, we supported Marines in planning for maritime raids. I my career and my deployments honestly had very little to do with the big battle. Happened to be part of you know influenced by what kind of helicopter I flew and what kind of units I was in and that sort of thing. But because of that, I wanted to understand the history of where the kinds of things I had done in my flying career. Where did that come from? Was there a history to that? Um, and so I went all the way back to the beginning. I went all the way back to the, the founding, the beginning of the United States Navy to start that examination of, hey, is there a history to this that maybe is, it's not more important than the big battles, clearly, but it's still something we ought to understand because as my, as my flying experience demonstrated, it's something we still do today. And so, you know, my focus on irregular operations and maritime raiding is not a focus to say, this is something that's more important than the big battles. Not at all. But I feel like we need to round out our conceptualization of what naval operations are and the, the wide expanse of the kinds of things that navies do. Yeah, that's an interesting reflection um, piece as well, because obviously we're influenced by our work as naval officers. We're also influenced by the tradition that has flown before us. They were also influenced by the sum of our personal experiences, whether that's our specialization for you as a pilot or the types of operations we conduct. And so I thought that was a good reflective piece. Now, Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote, the best use of a Navy is to find and defeat an opponent's fleet. And you touch on this in your book, how many Americans write through a Mahanian prison. How do you propose modern naval thinkers balance our purported grand history and theory, such as the Mahanian tradition? without ignoring the value and lessons from minor or less popular parts of naval history? That's a really interesting question. Um, it's actually something I'm, I'm in the middle of, of wrestling through right now with my class. I'm, uh, this semester, I'm teaching a class on the history of naval thought. Uh, we spent all last week reading works by Mahan, uh, and this week we're reading works by Julian Corbett, uh, and my midshipman and I are talking about them and, and wrestling with these questions of how do we see these strategists and historians who, who wrote a century ago or more? Um, how do we see them in contemporary context? I think when it comes to Mahan, one of the things we need to remember is that we should actually read Mahan. Um, and th that was actually the purpose of my first book. My first book called 21st Century Mahan is a short collection of, of some of Mahan's essays. I tend to find his, his uh, magazine articles and essays are a little bit easier to read Sometimes I think he had a better editor in those cases than his books. Um, and I think we have to admit, Mahan's books are, you know, they're Victorian era prose. They're late 19th century prose. They can be difficult to read. He's not the clearest writer. Yeah. Um, and so I think some of these essays and articles are, are a little bit easier to read. And so I collected a group of them into a book and wrote uh, contextual introductions uh, to those essays and to the book as a whole. Uh, and that was my first book, 21st Century Mahan. That was the whole, I, the whole point of it was to say, maybe we ought to read Mahan, not just the lecture notes, not just review what we were taught in classes about him, but actually read what he said. Because the thing I've found in reading Mahan is that we tend to talk about him based on about 80 pages of text. We tend to talk about Mahan based on kind of the introduction, the beginning part of the influence of sea power upon history. And those are an important 80 pages, right? He gets down to really interesting conceptual stuff there, right? The elements of sea power, what command of the sea is, why it matters. Um, so it's important stuff. But the man wrote like a dozen books. He wrote, if, if you count the interviews and op-eds that he wrote for like New York City newspapers, there's nearly 300 articles that either he wrote or were about him during his lifetime. That's a lot of material. The guy had to say a lot of different stuff. 
And frankly, what he said changed over time also. The influence of sea power upon history, published in 1890, is it's the beginning of his intellectual career. It's not the end, right? He dies in 1914. So from 1890 to 1914, for 25 years, he continues writing more articles, more books, and he continues developing his ideas, and they shift over time. So if we just look at the first 80 pages of the of the early book, well, that's not really fair to Mahan either, right? It's not like Clausewitz, right? It's not like Vom Krieg, which is the sum total. It's the magnum opus of Clausewitz's experience. He, as we know, he didn't even finish it. He dies before it's done. And Marie is the one who has to cobble it together and make it into a book. Mahan's not like that. The influence of sea power upon history comes at the beginning, not at the end. So I think my first answer to that question is we ought to actually read Mahan. And when we actually read Mahan, we see a lot of nuance about um, the interaction between military naval power and diplomacy and economics. We see discussion of what navies do during peacetime. Uh, we see a broader look at what fleet architecture should look like. Mahan is often caricatured as, as a battleship guy who only cares about battleships. But in readings like his essay, Considerations Governing the Disposition of Navies, he talks about a balanced fleet. He talks about battleships, cruisers, small craft that can go into the littorals, conduct raids, conduct blockades, uh, conduct all the kinds of, dare we say, irregular things that I write about in my work. And so if we read Mahan more broadly, we get to see a, a wider expanse of ideas. The same philosophy applies to Corbett. He wrote a lot also. We ought to read more of it. Actually, I think the, the Trafalgar campaign book, the beginning part, before you ever get to Trafalgar, is, is the way more interesting part of Corbett's book to me, because that's how Nelson manages the Mediterranean. The blockades, all the scouting, all the diplomatic work. It's, I find that even more fascinating than the battle itself. And so both of these men, we should read more of their work. And I think this applies to a lot of different uh, ways that we look at strategy. The other thing I think we need to remember about them is, is the context of their audience. Who were they writing for? Mahan was writing for a Navy that didn't have a lot of battleships, that didn't have a tradition of large fleet engagements, that hadn't really, you know, at the very beginning when he was teaching at the Naval War College in the 1880s, it didn't really have the doctrine set up to have a Navy with a battle fleet that was going to fight another Navy's battle fleet. So if that's who he was writing for, of course, his focus was on battleships. Of course, his focus was on the big fight when it happens and getting ready for it. Corbett, for example, is writing for a completely different audience. He's writing for the Royal Navy that for generations has known that big battles are important, right? That, that is the global naval hegemon, right? Mahan's writing for a third or fourth rate naval power. Corbett's writing for the, the global naval power. He doesn't have to remind naval officers that battles are important. And so when we read Corbett, when we read something like some principles of maritime strategy, and we say, oh, look, he's interested in all these other things besides the big battle. It's because he doesn't have to emphasize the big battle. And so he can talk about this other stuff because his audience needs to hear the other stuff. So I think the context of the audience for, for anybody that we read is something that ought to be in the back of our heads as we, as we think about them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you have to understand the context, not only who they were writing for, but the context of the world, their, their strategic and political position at the time, and not just take it at face value and read it through our contemporary lens of today. And I will admit that reading your book, The History of the Early US Navy, is not something I'd read on widely before, so I found it really educational. And I found it particularly interesting the how you detailed um, Roosevelt's role in enshrining a particular version of the U.S. Navy in public memory. Can you please talk through with us a little bit about Roosevelt's reimagining, or some might even say appropriation, of U.S. naval history for political purposes? And I guess here I'm talking about the example of John Paul Jones, if you could uh, expand on that for us. Right. I, I'm sitting just a, a half a block away from the Naval Academy Chapel where Jones is ostensibly uh, entombed in our crypt. Theodore Roosevelt is, a, is an enormously important figure in American naval history. And not just because of his presidency. Obviously, that's the most important part. But even before his presidency, he was, he was a navalist. Yeah, he wrote, didn't he? Yeah, he wrote his, his undergraduate 
senior thesis from Harvard. He turned it into a book, The Naval War of 1812. And it, you know, so after he graduated from Harvard, he, he edited it and wrote it and, and published it. And frankly, it's still one of the books that's on the kind of must-read list for the War of 1812's naval operations today. It's very good. There's a whole history there with another British author, William James, and Roosevelt's kind of in dialogue with with James. You know, James is making excuses for why the British didn't seem to do as well as people had hoped. Roosevelt is not letting him make those excuses. Um, so there's a, a fascinating, fascinating historiography there. But that, I mean, that's his undergraduate time, right? So Roosevelt's a, a navalist. He actually lectured at the Naval War College uh, not long after it was founded on the War of 1812. It's where he first met Mahan. And so when Roosevelt becomes president, Roosevelt, this is in, in the aftermath of the War of 1898, we kind of look at this era in American history as its moment of rise to great power status. And if the country, if the nation is rising to great power status, one of the, one of the arguments that Roosevelt makes, leveraging work by Mahan and others, is to make the argument that in order to be a great power, in order to have influence on the world, you have to have a big navy. You have to be a a globally deployed or deployable naval power if you intend to, to have that kind of great power influence. This is a crux of, of Mahan's ideas in the influence of sea power upon history, right? And, and Roosevelt buys into this and believes this. He already kind of knew it. And so when he becomes president, this is one of his major goals of his presidency is to build the U.S. Navy into that force. It's already started. It starts in the 1890s. It comes through the turn of the century, through the war, as I said. But Roosevelt makes a, uh, he, he decides to spend political capital on it. We have to remember that in an American context, in a, you know, as a democracy where our Congress controls the spending of our government, any, any large building effort by the, by the federal government, by the executive branch, has to have the buy-in arguably of the American people via their representatives in Congress. And so it's a political act. Building a big Navy is a political, a domestic political act for the United States, as much as it is an international political and diplomatic act. So Roosevelt has to figure out how to do this. How do I convince Americans that we need this big Navy? Now, he, he latches on to other occurrence in American political life at that time, you know, this idea of America as a rising power. But he also needs a hero. He's, he's a historian. He, he knows he needs a hero. He knows he needs someone to build his speeches around. And around that time is when uh, a naval attache or a military attache, actually, in the Paris embassy in, in Paris, France, discovers what he says is the tomb, the, the grave in a, in a pauper's graveyard in Paris, the grave of John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones had kind of disappeared after after the American Revolution. He he became a bit of a soldier of fortune. He he sailed with the French Navy for a while. He ended up serving with Catherine the Great's Navy uh, on the Black Sea um, in a war with the Ottoman Empire uh, and and made admiral. He was an admiral in the Russian Navy on the Black Sea. He dies a, a pauper. He dies penniless in Paris and kind of disappears. And so this military officer claims that he has found the grave of John Paul Jones, and they they uh, they dig him up and with the plan to reinter him back in the United States. And so I believe it's the USS Brooklyn is sent to Paris or sent to France to pick him up and and bring John Paul Jones back. And it is in this transfer right after Brooklyn returns to Annapolis, the plan being that he's, that John Paul Jones will be placed in the crypt in the, the new Naval Academy chapel. The Naval Academy here in Annapolis is going through a growth in this era. A lot of new buildings being built. Our magnificent chapel is one of them that's being built in this era. And this is an opportunity for, for Roosevelt. Roosevelt comes to Annapolis and he makes a big speech in, in the building we call Dahlgren Hall today. At the time, it was just called the Armory where he makes his case for a great Navy that he knows it's going to cost a lot of money and you, it needs to cost money and it's going to cost political capital, but you have to honor John Paul Jones by building this great Navy. And he casts Jones, uh, that history of Jones through two events in Jones's operational history as a Naval officer. First is kind of the, the more famous battle between the Bonhomme Richard and the HMS Serapis is the frigate duel that happens off of the uh, Flamborough Head, off the coast of, of, uh, of Britain, 
during the American Revolution. It's a it's a an American context, a very famous battle. It's three hours long. It is gruesome. It is bloody. Jones forces um, the the Serapis to strike its colors, and as his boarding party scrambles on board, the Bonhomme Richard sinks. So he loses his own ship, even though he wins the battle. Um, and so it's this magnificent kind of set piece, both tactically and strategically, because the strategically the um, the convoy that they wanted to attack, that Serapis was defending, escapes. So strategically, the British actually win that that battle. But the, tactically, it is this this you know great. There's great you know glorious quotes from John Paul Jones. I have not yet begun to fight when when Serapis asks him to strike his colors and, and things like that. So it's a famous American naval battle. There's also a battle uh, from his previous command, Ranger, when he fights the HMS Drake and also wins in another really tactically uh, impressive battle where he beats the the Drake. These are the things that Roosevelt focuses on. They are the blue water conventional naval battles of John Paul Jones. And, And John Paul Jones gets cast as this hero of a big Navy and of a Navy where ships and fleets fight ships and fleets. But it's true that he didn't actually see those two particular battles with the Drake and the Serapis as the pinnacle of his career, did he? Yeah, I would say I would say Jones himself. When we read his memoir, uh, he wrote a memoir that w- was sent to um, King Louis in France. You know, when we read his papers, which we're lucky enough to have here at the Naval Academy in, on, on microfilm in, in our in our library, he saw his experience, his operational experience, as much broader than just those two battles. Yes, those two battles were important, but he had a lot of success as a commerce raider. Um, off of the coast of, he would sail from New England and sail up off the coast of British North America or Canada as we know it today, uh, and attack the the merchant fleets and the fishing fleets there. He he and his crews made a lot of money off of prizes in cruises that he sailed on board Providence and on board Alfred, his two prior ships. Um, so he had this great commerce raiding career, and then he he conducted a lot of raiding operations and he planned a lot of raiding operations during his time. And so he saw his service as a much broader thing. It was not just these two great big, we won't even call them big, that's not fair, they're ship on ship, these two great battles, right? So he and his conceptualization of what naval power was had a much broader mindset. Uh, And so Roosevelt, in focusing on these two things, he's not inaccurate, he's not wrong. Those battles did happen. They were kind of glorious for the American cause, so to speak, but they were but it's insufficient to just look at those if we're trying to understand early American naval power. And do you think also this had a, a role in nation building as well? I know speaking from the Australian perspective, in my view, the Navy is only now gaining that prominence for Australia. The call to the profession of arms was historically seen through an army lens. But in the American case, do you think this had a role in nation building as well? Or now That's a really interesting question. So there is, in, in this early American era that, that I study and write about in my book, domestically in the United States, there is a, a running debate over military power and what kind of military power the United States needs to have. I mean, if we think back to the American Revolution, right, and the, the causes of the American Revolution, a lot of them are wrapped up in overbearing British military power. Right? The quartering of British troops in American homes, right, taking over their homes and making them the troops live in, in American homes, things like that. The, a lot of the taxes that are anathema to Americans are taxes that are necessary for funding the British military that's in North America. And so there's a, in this early American era, there's a very high suspicion of military forces. The result is when it comes to land power in the United States, the, the primary land power in this era is militia. Right? It's the citizen soldier in the American conceptualization of, of militia members who can get called up in times of need, but who are not really professional soldiers. And there, you know, there's a, an effort by Alexander Hamilton, actually, to build a, a core professional force, but it will always be a small army force that the militia will then rally around when needed for a, a, for a, a war. This militia concept, the whole idea here is to you know, you you will know the people in the military, they will be your neighbors, but also they're far less likely to become a challenge to the government, to, to gain too much power themselves in this citizen-soldier system. 
you can't do navies that way. The closest that the Americans get is this reliance on privateers, this, this large use of privateering, which is kind of seen as the American equivalent, but it's not really the same thing. And so the Navy, the U.S., the concept of a U.S. Navy has a very fraught political path in the era from the American Revolution up to about the end of the War of 1812. There is a very strong uh, political movement that, that the historian Craig Simons has called the anti-navalist movement that says a Navy is going to be trouble for America. A Navy is only going to drag us into external fights. It's going to go out on the world's oceans and cause trouble and get us sucked into things. We don't need a Navy. And oh, by the way, a Navy is traditionally an aristocracy. Right? If we think of the Royal Navy, we think of the, the patronage system that helps officers get their commissions. You know, we think about the, the Royal Navy as the senior service and its place in British society. It's, it's an aristocracy thing. Americans are not about aristocracy. Uh, well, we say we're not about aristocracy, right? Even in that era. Yeah. And so there's a tension there too. There's like the sociocultural tension as well as the geopolitical tension of having a Navy. And so these anti-navalists have pretty strong arguments. The third one, the third strong argument they have is, is there's no money. Navies are enormously expensive. And, and the Americans are in deeply in debt after the American Revolution. Uh, and so all these arguments come together to make a, a, I look back on it. And of course, I think the United States should have had a Navy, but I see the logic to these anti-navalist arguments, right? I have to admit that they're, they're valid. The other arguments on the pro-naval, on the navalist side uh, are just as strong, but there's this tension that happens during these decades. Uh, and so I, I have a, I don't know that the U S Navy really in a nation building sense um, the Navy itself, but this debate over the role of military power in the new United States and what kinds of military power and how you develop it and how you build it, these are central to the political development of our nation. Uh, and so uh, it's not direct, but there is definitely an indirect influence there. And in your book, you also refer to the Second War of 1812, where you describe the irregular naval warfare components of the battle post the British blockade on the American coast as, and I'm going to quote you here, a campaign by a weaker power against the global naval hegemon over access to the defender's coast and a campaign with particular relevance to challenges faced by 21st century US Navy. Would, do you think that applies to other navies as well? Would you be able to provide a brief overview of that uh, juxtaposition of the history to contemporary navies today, please? I think that's a Looking at that from the perspective of, of other navies is is potentially a, a valuable look at American naval history that, frankly, I haven't thought a lot about. When I wrote that in the book, I was actually thinking in an inverted way. In the U.S. Navy sense, yeah. Yeah, the U.S. Navy, the US Navy today in the 21st century is kind of the naval hegemon, right? The yeah. global naval power. That when we study the War of 1812, what we actually ought to be studying is the British side. How did the British conduct the war in American waters? And why did they do the things they did? And when you look at the American experience in the War of 1812, what you're really looking at, I, I don't want to say necessarily lesser powers, but smaller navies might try to use against the U.S. Navy today in the 21st century. And so you see these irregular campaigns in the War of 1812 by the Americans against the British. And... Yeah, you know, I'll give you an example. So uh, over over in the Naval Academy Library, up in the up in the archive in the attic, there's some of the papers of Robert Fulton, who uh, is an American engineer and weapons designer in this era, and he he's most famously known here in the United States as as the person who introduced us to steam power. He builds the first steam powered ferries after bringing steam the, the technology of steam engines back to the United States from Great Britain. So he's known as this steam engine and merchant guy, but he's actually a weapons designer also. And there's this, one of his letters over in, in the archive has a sketch and it's just a pencil sketch of a British warship. You can see the hull of a large warship, right? Kind of a ship of the line probably. And then it's got probably a dozen little small boats sketched in with spar torpedoes on their bows swarming around this big ship to attack it, you know, and I took a picture of that 
document and I showed it to a friend of mine and I said, what does this look like? And he thought about it and he said, it looks like a Straits of Hormuz transit today. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Yeah. Right. And so this idea of looking at it, what the Americans did in the war of 1812 as something that the modern versions of could be tried in a conflict today against the Americans is I think an interesting use of history. Now your question was kind of, was, was the opposite, right? If you are a small power, what, what can you learn from early American naval history? If you're a kind of a middleweight or a smaller power, I think American naval history is ripe with things to study because the United States was that small power, right? In the age of sail era. In the era before our civil war in the middle of the 19th century, we had these debates over what kind of Navy we should have, whether we should have one at all, but they involved what types of ships should get built. Why should they get built? Um, should there be ships of the line, which is the equivalent of the battleship in that era? All of these discussions and how the U.S. Navy operates in this time frame uh, offers potential insights for smaller powers today, I think. I think that's a, it's a, you know, you're, you're making a great case on why everyone ought to read American naval history. You're welcome. <laughs> One last question for you on your books. I note, I found it quite interesting, actually. In the foreword of your book, you put in two things that stood out to me. The first one was you put in the Captain Frank Ramsey, what he wrote on uh, Mahan's fitness report, and I'll quote it, it is not the business of naval officers to write books, and I'll probably add to that and conduct podcasts, but here we are, both of us. And you followed it by a thanks to the Society for the Repression of Ignorant Assumption and that they know that they have your thanks. From your personal perspective, do you still find the Captain Ramsey view prevalent uh, in the Navy? I think so. I, I, I don't want to call my service anti-intellectual because I think that's going too far. But we are a very, you know, Captain Peter Schwartz once said this to me. So C Captain Peter Schwartz is a, a retired U.S. Navy captain, um, longtime uh, think tanker at the Center for Naval Analysis in, in Washington, D.C. But before that, he was a, a strategist and staff officer in the U.S. Navy, served in Vietnam. Peter was actually the, the author of the maritime strategy in the 1980s. He, at the time, I believe as a commander, he's the one who sat down at the typewriter and actually wrote it. Um, sure, it was ideas from Secretary Lehman and all kinds of different places, but, but then Commander Schwartz is the one who wrote, sat down and had the staff officer task of writing it. And at one point, uh, Captain Schwartz said to me, he pointed out that we're a very experience-based service in our culture. Uh, and senior officers tend to fall back on their own lived experience as the guiding light of uh, how they make their decisions. So they look for analogies in their own life to what is going on now. Sometimes that works out really well because sometimes it is similar or the same thing to what they've done before. But oftentimes those analogies are stretches, right? And they make decisions based off faulty information. But that's culturally and socially, that's part of our officer core. I think that's reality. What ought we be doing? Well, we ought to be reading lots of things from the past, lots of books, quite frankly, that build that vicarious experience for us. But I don't know that we do that a lot. You know, I had another, another person once pointed out to me that every admiral has a book of naval history on their bedside table. Yeah. Um, but they're reading them to reinforce their ideas and for a good bedtime story. They're not reading them to try and challenge their ideas or to actually study them. And so I, I do think there is a tendency to, to focus on that lived experience as opposed to the study of our profession, the study of our history and our past. And if that's the tendency, then of course, investing the time and energy needed to write a book, which is a pretty big undertaking, is, is time and energy that could be spent doing other things in a, in a naval mind. Yeah, I believe it is quite dichotomous as well. You have a whole group of people who have the perception you need to just go out there and do it, and that's the only thing that will give you legitimacy, uh, which I agree there is no substitute for experience. However, it doesn't have to be at the cost of uh, the thinking fight. Uh, and, you know, actually you don't have, it's not mutually exclusive. You should have both in balance and some level of balance, both the intellectual side, whether that's critical thinking, 
Um, and for techos in particular, it, it might not actually be purely intellectual. It could just be um, self-learning through other types of practice outside of traditional education. But, yeah, I think that's a good point. And personal choices. Personal choices too, right? Like, look, I have to admit, I don't golf. I don't play golf. And, and I'm frankly, I'm not a big American football fan. Uh, and so that means I had a couple hours every weekend that I could invest in reading and potentially writing articles for Proceedings Magazine or, or stuff like that. Um, you know, and so I, I had friends or, or, or peers in the fleet who would ask me, you know, how do you have time to write for Proceedings? It's like, well, I'm not playing golf with you on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and so it's a personal choice. I, I elected to do that thing. Yeah. I, um, I totally agree. I think I'm the same. I always participate in sports when I'm actually playing it, but as for viewing it, I'd much rather read a book um, than watch it on TV. Oh, well, thank you very much for that. That wraps up the core part of our podcast. I found it extremely interesting and I know our listeners will as well. Now we're just going to move into the Sailors 3. So that's the three questions we ask every podcast guest at the end. So what we're going to ask Commander Armstrong is, his favorite military platform that's in service or from history, the most interesting emerging technology at any stage of development, and then the wild card where he can make a prediction, recommend a book, or provide a tip. So Sailors 3, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So what is your favorite military platform in service or from history? And just really briefly, why? This is a really easy one for me. This is uh, my favorite military platform is the HH-46 Delta Sea Knight helicopter. <laughs> Hemingway, Hemingway has a, a great quote. Uh, Hemingway has a great quote. He says, there isn't uh, something along the lines of this. I, I don't have it memorized, but it's like there isn't a woman or a horse or anything that's as lovely as a great airplane. And, and the men who love them are always faithful to them, even if they go fly another. Once an aviator, always an aviator. Yeah. And so my first aircraft, my first fleet aircraft was the HH-46 Delta. The two aircraft that my detachment took for OIF-1 for the invasion of Iraq, the run to Baghdad, where we flew medevac Kazavak missions for the Marines uh, and logistics missions through the, the North Arabian Gulf. Those two birds had patched combat damage from Vietnam. Wow. Uh, Bay Raider 6, Bay Raider 62, one of our birds had literally sat in a South Vietnamese rice paddy for several weeks, maybe months, uh, and been salvaged by the U.S. Navy. It had been shot out from under a group of Marines. The Navy had salvaged it and rebuilt it. And that was the bird I was flying in Iraq. Wow. Uh, and so I was flying history, right? You know, I was a, I was a young uh, Lieutenant Junior Grade at the time and, and, just had a, an inkling that I was interested in history and that I might someday return to studying it after studying it at the Naval Academy as a student. But but yeah, I was flying history. Uh, and, and those aircraft were uh, unique. They're tandem rotor aircraft. Um, they're kind of, if you think about it, the baby brother to the Chinook, the CH-47. And, and so they're tandem rotor aircraft. They're really unique. They fly in interesting ways. The missions that we had in terms of search and rescue and medevac Kazavak, as well as flying vertical replenishment, so the moving of supplies from one ship to another. Uh, vert rep is the ballet of the air. Um, it is, it's an absolute challenge, but also a great joy and fun to fly that mission. And that aircraft, yeah, it was, it was uh, shaped my naval career, even though I only flew them uh, for about three years, at the end of my first tour, the Navy retired them. Well, I flew in the last flight of the HH-46 Delta that the U.S. Navy flew um, in Norfolk, Virginia. So I went on to fly, you know, MH-60 Sierras, all kinds of other aircraft, but but always, always came back to the Frog, which was the nickname we had for the 46. Your first true love, I see. Uh, there you go. Yeah. And uh, we'll move on to our second question now. So what is the most interesting emerging technology, in your view, at any stage of development? I am really interested by the unmanned undersea vehicles. Um, the U.S. Navy is developing both large ones and small ones. I, I I'm really fascinated by these for a couple of reasons, probably not the reasons most people would think. It's not necessarily the technology that I'm that interested in. It strikes me that there's a, a narrative within military and, and naval circles about the replacement of pilots by 
UAVs, right? Yes. And, and this has been a discussion now for, for over a decade that, hey, the future of air power is going to be unmanned. And, and therefore, you're not going to need pilots anymore. And, and I think there's, uh, for many missions and for, for some uses of aircraft, there's a, a very real truth to that. I think that might also be true for submariners. Which is not discussed to the same length, which it has been for. Yeah. And we don't talk about that at all. We don't talk about that at all, right? Um, and, and they would be mad at me for using the British pronunciation of submariner. My, my brothers and sisters who are submariners in, uh, in the United States who prefer that pronunciation because they don't want to be below anything. They don't, I, I have never, they've never talked about it. I've never heard anyone talk about, oh, if the unmanned undersea surface vessels actually work and can do so many of these potential missions, do we need as much of an, a manned submarine force in the future? Uh, I think it's, it's an interesting question um, that has a lot of cultural implications and, and bureaucratic and organizational implications for the U.S. Navy, because the, the power of naval reactors, the power of our nuclear uh, uh, specialists in the U.S. Navy, is, it's very strong. They have a lot of power in our bureaucracy, in how we spend money, in how we train and educate our force. And what happens when that power starts to wane if they get smaller as a group? I find it interesting. And I'll be very interested to hear any responses from our listeners when uh, they listen to that part. That's really interesting. Now, our final question is the wild card. So you can pick a prediction for the future of military ops or technology, recommend a book that all emerging maritime leaders should read, or provide a tip for emerging maritime leaders. So which of the three will you pick today? Uh, I think I'm going to, I'm going to kind of combine the book and the tip. Okay. So, so my tip, we've already talked about the fact that we should read more books, right? We yes, should, we as have. naval professionals, we should read our history, but, but any kind of naval professional topic. So I'm not going to point out a specific book, but the reading of, of, of history in particular, of course, because I'm a historian is part of my tip, but then talk about it. That's the other part of the tip. When I look back at our uh, naval past, not just in an American context, but I'm thinking of the British also, great reforms, changes, and advancements in the naval profession often came from groups of officers who sat around talking about the things they read. In the American context, we have what's called the Naval Lyceum which is established at the Brooklyn Navy Yard uh, in the 1830s. And it, what is it about? It's really about the naval officers, really the junior officers founded it. The JOs getting together to talk about their profession, to talk about their experiences or the things they were reading. And oh, by the way, they decided to write it down and they started a magazine called the Naval Magazine. It only lasted about two years before they ran out of money. Um, but it's kind of the predecessor to the Naval Institute and proceedings for in an American context. You know, and, and the founding of the Naval Institute's the same story. There was a group of junior officers, mid-career officers here at the Naval Academy who spent all day long teaching midshipmen, but who didn't feel like they were being taught how to do their job better or think about their job as professionals. So what did they do? Well, they got together to talk about it. Hmm. They read articles or papers that they had written for each other, and they debated them as a group. You know, over over a glass of wine or or a beer, they would talk about their profession and the things they were reading. In the British context, this is how Naval Review gets started, right? Reginald Plunkett and, and the the folks that started Naval Review for the Royal Navy, same idea. A couple of guys sitting around, and I keep saying guys because right, they were all male then, so not just men, clearly but just sitting around to talk about their profession. So the tip is go read good books, but find a group to talk about them with. Because I think that discussion really, really helps us. It's always helped me understand what I've read better. You know, someone else's eyes, someone else's thoughts, like, well, I didn't read that that way. But I, this is how I thought he was saying that. This is how I thought she meant that. And, and it changes your perception of what you've, the knowledge that you've consumed. And so I think that that discussion 
is often the thing that we, we talk about, you know, officers ought to read, officers maybe ought to write, but that discussion is a core part, I think, of our development as naval officers. And then to, to turn back around to the book, uh, my newest project, co-written with a colleague of mine here in the History Department, the Naval Academy, Captain John Fryman, is a book called Developing the Naval Mind. Uh, it'll it's it's in production right now. It should be out from the Naval Institute Press uh, sometime this fall, we think. Uh, and that's the whole purpose of the book is to talk about how you develop your naval mind through reading and then discussion as a group. It's a practical guide with what we as professors call pedagogy, right? The methods of learning, uh, how you lead a discussion group, how you participate in a discussion group, as well as some recommended readings and, and places to start in terms of finding good things to talk about. Yeah, I like that. And I, I agree with you. The discussion often helps you assimilate the core concepts as well as provides views of like other person's views and their interpretation of the content. And uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've had many fantastic discussions over a bowl of wine in the wardroom. And often when you go on courses or things like that, it's one of the greatest things what starts as a catch-up about your personal lives does come back to what we've read recently, what kind of operations we've been doing. And I've always found those discussions in a relaxed environment incredibly useful to build a esprit de corps but also to think critically. So I really enjoyed that point. Well, thank you so much for appearing on our show, Commander Armstrong. It's been extremely insightful and I know this is going to be something that's going to stimulate a lot of discussion on our site. Again, thank you so much for joining us on Je Nicole, Commander Armstrong. It's been a stimulating discussion and we hope to have you back again in the future. Lucy, it's been great talking with you and uh, I've had a lot of fun. I look forward to your future podcasts. I really enjoyed the one with, with, with Jeff Till um, and I look forward to listening to you in the future. Thank you for listening to Je Nicole Pod. Stay in contact with us via jeunicole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeunicole.com. Dot com.